One of my favorite things about being a children's pastor is the opportunity I have to walk alongside the men and women who give generously of their time to shepherd the little ones at resurrection. And recently I was speaking with one of our volunteers who just seems like a real natural, one of those people who just seems like they, they were made for children's ministry. And she was telling me that when she started, she actually didn't feel like things were going very well. She couldn't get her kids to focus on any substantive uh, conversation. Uh, she felt like she wasn't being very effective. By the end of the year, she thought, you know, I'm not sure I'm cut out for children's ministry. Then one of the last Sundays, they had this, uh, this invitation to the leaders to pray for each one of the children, to pray a blessing over each child individually. And as she did that, she realized the connection that she had built with each of these children over the course of the year. And suddenly it just, it, it just struck her how meaningful her ministry was and how significant, uh, how significant the work was that she was doing. And this realization, this vision, motivated her to serve again the following year. I find that it's often the case that when you find someone who insists on persevering through something difficult, through a difficult situation or a difficult task, often there's some kind of defining vision that sustains them. When a married couple is experiencing conflict, often perhaps they think back to their wedding day or their first date. They remember this love that they share with one another. A runner who wants to flop over on the sidewalk in the middle of a race might, might think forward to that victory experience of crossing the finish line. A five-year-old may determinedly eat down those greens that they don't want to eat because mom has showed him the slice of cake that he'll receive when he finishes. See, most of us who are sane don't seek out suffering or difficulty for its own sake. People don't start lifting weights because they want to feel like they've been hit by a truck the next day. Often, when we willingly set out to do something that is difficult, it is because somewhere along the way, We've been given this vision of where that difficult path is leading us. And it's somewhere we want to be. Sometimes this happens in a moment of inspiration, even a kind of mountaintop experience, where we're moved to embark on the journey where we find ourselves. Often the mountaintop experiences are there in our lives to sustain us in the valley that is coming. Our gospel reading today from the book of Matthew is about a literal mountaintop experience that Jesus and three of his closest friends had together. It's an event that has come to be known as the Transfiguration. And to be perfectly honest, for most of my Christian life, I really didn't get this passage. The first time I ever remember hearing it was as a kid in Sunday school. And I'm going to date myself here. It was a flannel graph story. Some of you are laughing because you know what a flannel graph is. <laughs> For those of you who were born in the digital age, a flannel graph was a, was a board covered in flannel and you would take flannel cutouts of characters and scenery and, and accessories and you'd put it up and it'd stick to this flannel board. And this is how the story went as, as I understood it. Jesus and three of his friends inexplicably go up a mountain. It doesn't say why they're going up a mountain. 
And then suddenly Jesus, is, Jesus starts glowing. And we're not told why Jesus is glowing. He, and nobody explained that to me. He just starts glowing. And then Moses and Elijah appear out of nowhere and start talking to him. And then Peter's confused and, and makes a suggestion of pitching tents. And then, and then God's voice suddenly booms out of a cloud and says that Jesus is his son and they should listen to him. And then all the crazy stuff disappears. And it's just Jesus and his disciples again. And I, I didn't understand what was happening here. The stories of Jesus' teachings made sense to me because they told us how to live. The stories of his miracles made sense to me because they revealed his power. But to my seven-year-old mind, so far as what I could tell, the main takeaway here was Jesus' clothes became really white. <laughs> Th that detail actually really captured my imagination. I wondered like, if people noticed that his clothes were white when he came down off the mountain. Did they ask, wow, Jesus, what kind of bleach are you using? <laughs> hey, disciples, do you know how his clothes got so white? Don't ask us. We're not allowed to talk about it. <laughs> the, the problem was, I realized years later that the story didn't make sense to me because I'd never really heard it in its context. It was always just the story that was taken out of the context. I didn't hear it in its context of the gospel narrative, nor did I hear it in the context of the rest of the Bible. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which we call the synoptic Gospels, all tell this story. And the Gospels all tend to arrange their, their episodes. They don't tend to tell the story in chronological order. They'll often arrange it with, with a certain purpose in mind. But all three of the Gospel writers have the same sequence of events that lead up to the transfiguration. First, Jesus asks his disciples who they think he is. And Peter correctly declares that Jesus is the Messiah the long-awaited king who is supposed to restore God's kingdom in Israel. So you can imagine that his disciples would be pretty excited that Jesus says, yes, that's right, don't tell anyone. Then you can imagine the whiplash when Jesus then predicts that he is going to die. Peter tries to talk him off the ledge. He says, Jesus, this will never happen to you. And we have the famous rebuke of Peter where Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You don't have your mind set on, things that are, on the things of God. And so he tells Peter, no, I am going to suffer and die, and anyone who follows me will also suffer. But then he tells his disciples that there are some of them standing there that will actually get to see him coming into his kingdom. So you've got these thoughts rattling around in the disciples' heads, and, and this episode, this event happens just about a week later. This is the sequence of events that leads up to the transfiguration. Jesus takes his inner circles of disciples, Peter, James, and John, up a mountain. Now, with all this talk of Jesus being the Messiah and coming into his kingdom, what do you suppose is going through their minds when Jesus starts glowing? Like Moses did when he came down the mountain of God. We, we didn't have that part in our reading. but When Moses comes down off the mountain, his face is glowing. What do you think they would have been thinking of? What do you suppose would be going through their head when Moses and Elijah show up and start talking to Jesus? Moses had promised, in Deuteronomy, he said that God would raise up a prophet like him from among his people, and they were to listen to him. Jesus was glowing like Moses when he came down from Sinai. Jesus was the prophet like Moses. Then the book of Malachi says that God would send Elijah the prophet, before the day of the Lord's coming. And here was Elijah. That means the day of the Lord was here. 
not only that, but you have Moses, the lawgiver, and Elijah, the quintessential prophet, perhaps pointing to the fact that the Old Testament law and the prophets were pointing to this moment. Then there's a bright cloud, just like there was on Sinai when God appeared to Moses, just like there was when his presence filled the temple. And you hear the voice of God himself saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. If you're Peter, James, and John, and you know your Bible, which they've been traveling with Jesus for a while, I imagine they did, you might be thinking, this is it. Jesus is about to set up his kingdom now with Moses and Elijah to help him. Maybe Peter figures Jesus is going to set up his headquarters on the mountain and suggest setting up the tents because maybe he thinks Elijah and Moses are going to stick around for a while. We actually don't know what Peter's thinking. All we know is in Mark it says that he was confused and that he didn't know what to say. But if we read the context of the transfiguration carefully, we can see that this event isn't about Jesus setting up an earthly kingdom. It's a glimpse of the glory that is yet to come. Listen to how Jesus sets up the event. At the end of the previous chapter, if you have your Bible with you, I'm going to read something that isn't in your bulletin from Matthew 16, beginning in verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. You see that? He seems to be talking about his his second coming, his ultimate coming into his kingdom. I don't know if Peter understood this at the time, but he clearly understands it later. 30 or so years later in a letter that he writes, I'm going to read from 2 Peter chapter 1, 2 Peter 1, 16 to 18. He says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And Peter goes on to talk about the coming of the Lord in Second Peter. This experience on the mountain was given to Peter, James, and John so that they could get a glimpse of Jesus in all of his glory. His future glory, that even though it chronologically hadn't come yet, was already there. This future glory, so that they would know that it wasn't all made up. In the transfiguration, we have God pulling back the curtain so his disciples could see with their own eyes and hear with their own ears that Jesus was the Son of God and he would be victorious. This is what we call an epiphany. When God reveals himself to someone. Short of the death and resurrection of Jesus, this event was probably the clearest epiphany of Jesus's identity that these three men would witness. And they fall flat on their face in fear and awe. They were given a glorious glimpse of Jesus and all his majesty coming into his kingdom. But it wasn't a glimpse that could last. Not yet. The glorious visions disappear, and Jesus invites them to rise, and suddenly it's just him and them. It was time to come down from the mountain. 
as they head down, the reality of what they're about to face begins to set in. They discover that the Elijah that they'd been expecting as the Messiah's forerunner had already come. It was John the Baptist. And he'd been rejected and killed. And now Jesus was saying that he too would suffer that same fate. Jesus' disciples likely envisioned him coming into his kingdom as a conquering hero, driving out the Romans from Jerusalem. They could not yet grasp that Jesus' path to the kingdom would run through the cross. They didn't yet understand that the enemy that Jesus would defeat was ultimately not Rome, but sin and death itself. The disciples were coming down the mountain into what would prove to be a deep valley. To borrow the phrase of David in Psalm 23, they were headed into the valley of the shadow of death. And this is why that mountaintop experience was so important. It revealed to them that the end, the end game of everything that was to come, what would seem like a horrible defeat on the road to Golgotha, to Calvary, was actually a brilliant offensive in which Jesus would conquer sin and death through his sacrifice, his self-sacrificial love. The shame of the cross was actually our glorious salvation. The glory would be masked behind suffering, but the transfiguration reveals to us that Jesus is God's anointed and that he would be victorious. Even on that cross, he was king and he would come into his kingdom. We always celebrate the Feast of the Transfiguration at the turning point between the church seasons of Epiphany and Lent. There's a good reason for that. Epiphany is the time when we celebrate Jesus revealing himself, manifesting himself to the disciples and to the world. Lent, on the other hand, is a time for us to intentionally take up our cross and follow Jesus. On the one hand, the Transfiguration reveals the glory and majesty of Jesus the Son of God. On the other hand, it's the prelude to his journey into the valley of the shadow of death. The Father in his mercy is giving Jesus and his three closest friends a vision of the glory that was to come before sending them down the mountain to face the cross. As we were praying today, Father Aaron had this, this um, I don't know, example that really stuck out to me, the example of seeing a bright light and then closing your eyes and still being able to see that image. This, this was an image that they could carry with them as they journeyed into the shadow. Now, I want to be clear. The transfiguration is a unique event. We shouldn't expect that we are going to have our own transfiguration experience that was like this. However, when we read the rest of scripture, we find that God often works in a similar way. It's really interesting. In his great mercy, he often gives his loved, his loved ones some kind of vision of his purposes and of the glory that he's calling them to at the end of their journey. He reveals himself to Abraham before sending him out into a strange land. He gives Jacob a heavenly vision at the beginning of his exile. He speaks to Moses in the burning bush before sending him to Egypt. He speaks to him again on Sinai and, 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 and manifests himself to him before sending him into the wilderness. The apostle Paul sees Jesus face to face before he 
discovers how much he will suffer for his name. I could go on, but the point is this. Often, the purpose of a mountaintop experience is to prepare us for the valley. Many of us who are followers of Jesus can probably think back to one or more times in our lives that we would consider to be a mountaintop experience of God. Perhaps it was the moment when you first understood the depth of Jesus' love for you and you responded in faith. Perhaps it was a healing you experienced or a meaningful retreat or a mission trip or a, a worship experience that was particularly poignant. These are gifts from the Lord and you are right to treasure them. However, there is a danger that we will become so enamored with the experience itself that we miss the reality that it's pointing us toward. We may try to pitch our tents, if you will, on the mountain to stay there, to pursue the spiritual high after spiritual high. And I've seen this manifest itself in a few different ways. For some, there may be this expectation that every Sunday ought to engage our emotions and intellect in a certain way. And if the sermon doesn't quite blow us away because it's a guest preacher instead of Father Aaron. <laughs> or if we don't emotionally connect to the music, we may feel like we didn't really connect with God. And when we're not on top of the mountain, we begin to doubt ourselves or doubt our faith or doubt God. It may even lead us to, to go from church to church looking for that profound experience. And we come and we think we have it and we stay for about a year and then it's not really hitting us anymore. And then we go to the next church. There's actually a, a, a danger here for those of us in ministry too or those preparing for ministry. If you think that your job is for your people to have some kind of mountaintop experience every week, you're going to be tempted to try to manufacture that for them. And I'm going to tell you that the weight of that expectation is going to crush you and your congregation. See, mountaintop experiences are not supposed to last forever. Not on this side of eternity, anyway. The final chapter of the Bible paints a picture for us of an eternal mountaintop experience. Don't get me wrong. I'm going to turn to Revelation 21. It's at the very back of your Bible, I'm sorry, uh, Revelation, Revelation 22, where am I here? Yeah, Revelation 21, it says, uh, verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's, that's the permanent mountaintop experience. And any glimpse of glory that we receive before then is just a foretaste of that reality. We actually have a little mini mountaintop experience every week when we celebrate communion. For just a moment, the veil tears back, and we are worshiping with the angels and archangels and all the company of heaven who forever sing his praise. But we're not quite there yet. And at some point, we have to come down off the mountain. Every week, we get sent out into the world, down from the mountain. Just a week before their mountaintop experience, Jesus told Peter, James, and John 
that if anyone would come after him, and that includes us, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. Our path to the kingdom also runs through the cross. We are called down the mountain into the valley, but we don't go without hope. Because as we come down from the mountain, we have something to sustain us. And it's the same thing that the disciples have. In verse 7 of this passage, it says, But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. When all the sights and sounds and visions of glory were gone, what remained to the disciples was Jesus himself. In fact, that's really the whole purpose of any spiritual mountaintop experience. It's supposed to point us to Jesus. Sure, we may find it easier to trust Jesus on the mountaintop, but he's still with us in the valley. In fact, sometimes the difficult times in our lives reveal Jesus' faithfulness in a way that the mountaintop never could. I was recently talking to a young woman who has a, a rare form of cancer that can be controlled but not entirely treated. And with tears in her eyes, she told me how faithful Jesus had been to her in this season. She said, you know how Jesus says to Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe? I don't feel like that even applies to me because I feel like I've really seen Jesus and felt his love. This blew me away. Somehow the Lord has given her this profound gift of seeing Jesus only, even as she goes through difficulty. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. It is not my intent to denigrate mountaintop experiences. Quite the opposite. The transfiguration was a profound gift to Peter and James and John, and they wrote it down so it would be a gift to us as well. But remember that the mountaintop prepares us for the valley. Let that experience of God, that experience that maybe you remember fondly, or this vision of the transfiguration, let it point you to Jesus as it's intended to do, to prepare you to take up your cross and follow him. Don't avoid the valley. Don't seek the next mountaintop. Rather, let that vision of glory sustain you as you go down into the valley. I think it's fitting in preparation for the season of Lent, which is starting this Wednesday, Ash Wednesday, to say a few words about that here. I won't go into details on the history or purpose of Lent. If you want to know more, your pastor has written a book, and no, he did not ask me to endorse it. <laughs> but as a quick intro, Lent is a season where Christians have historically chosen to fast or abstain from certain foods or activities, and then take on spiritual disciplines of reading scripture or, or prayer or generosity. And the purpose of Lent isn't to beat ourselves up and to make ourselves feel bad about ourselves. It's really a way to intentionally walk with Jesus and to make room for him in our heart. In many ways, I think Lent can be an excellent antidote for the temptation to compulsively seek out mountaintop experiences. Because Lent is a slow burn. It starts off with a bang, right? Ash Wednesday is this beautiful service and you get the ashes on your head and, and you're reflecting on, on, on our mortality and on Jesus' love for us. And even that first week of 
of practicing whatever practice you're taking on at Lent, it can be really meaningful, really profound. And then the next week comes. And the thing about Lent is it's 40 days long. <laughs> maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm just less spiritual than everybody else. But I find that, yeah, some days I, I have this real connection with God that I feel. And then other days, I'm just hungry. <laughs> I just want to eat that steak or drink that coffee or watch that movie or whatever it is that I'm abstaining from. If you're relying on your feelings to carry you through Lent, you're going to be disappointed. And that's sort of the point. If you're feeling spiritually inept during Lent, it probably means it's working. <laughs> because the purpose of Lent isn't to attain a certain feeling. The point is to root out some of that junk in our lives so that we can see Jesus only and walk with him in the valley. If you choose to take on a Lenten discipline this year, I want to encourage you to consider what it is you're looking for. If you're looking for a mountaintop experience, you may be disappointed. But if you're content to walk down the mountain with Jesus only, you may find it to be an incredibly rich season for your soul. My prayer for you is that you'll find that fasting with Jesus is far more satisfying than feasting without him. I would love for God to give you some kind of personal epiphany. I wish we all had that. I would love for each of you to have this world-shaking, experiential encounter that you can hold on to when things get difficult. But more than that, I want you to hold on to Jesus. Truth be told, as beautiful as those experiences may be, they will pale in comparison to the glory that is coming. The glory that Peter, James, and John saw on the mountain is only a sliver of what God has in store for us on the other side of eternity. Even if we are walking through a dark valley now, and I know that some of you are, perhaps many of us, you have circumstances in your life that make it difficult to, to even conceive of, of, of life without those difficulties. But even as we walk through the dark valley now, all of us are actually on a pilgrimage to the mountain of God. We're with Moses and Elijah and Peter and James and John. We will be in the glorious presence of Jesus forever. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.